I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America, which is the founder and owner of the open access journal, Lupus Science and Medicine, that is published by BMJ. In this program, we will be speaking with Megan Angley, PhD candidate in epidemiology, who is also affiliated with the Gold Study in the Rheumatology Department at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and with Dr. Sam Lim, Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine, and with Dr. Megan Close, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. We will discuss the article, Anti-Malarium Hormone in African-American Women with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, and the article, Learning to Listen, How Emphatic Engagement with Patients Can Help Overcome Reproductive Injustice. These articles are published online in the open access journal, Lupus Science and Medicine, and are available for free at lupus.bmj.com. Megan Angley, let's begin our discussion with an overview of the issue of fertility in women with lupus. Prior to your study, what was known about this issue? Prior to this study, the AMH paper, we did another study based on this pilot data looking at infertility in a lupus population, specifically African-American women with lupus. And we found that when they're attempting pregnancy, they did not experience infertility more often than women without lupus. And there are some caveats to that. A lot of women gave birth at younger ages in our study, so they might have completely their families before they even were diagnosed with lupus, but we found that it wasn't that big of an issue in our population. Dr. Close, what has been your experience among people with lupus treated at your institution? I really do not see infertility very often in women living with lupus. We do see it occasionally. It's most commonly prompted by prior exposure to cyclophosphamide, in my experience, but I don't see a lot of primary infertility in this population. That is different than women with rheumatoid arthritis, where we do statistically see higher rates of infertility. And if I have patients working with the fertility clinic, it is almost always a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, or it's a patient with lupus that is particularly severe and she's thinking about a surrogate pregnancy. Many of our patients with lupus get pregnant very quickly, sometimes more quickly than they expect and more easily than they expect. So let's next provide some background on the anti-malarium hormone that was at the center of your study. What is its history as a marker for fertility? And why did you want to study its use among African-American women? There is some controversy about if it actually can be predictive of time to pregnancy, but there are studies where it shows that women who have higher levels of anti-malarian hormone because it's secreted by developing ovarian follicles have an easier time getting pregnant. There have been some studies where AMH is examined in lupus populations, but they showed some different results. And we also couldn't really find any studies where it was specifically looked at in African-American lupus populations. So that was the driving factor for this study is we wanted to examine these levels. Also, another point was that we wanted to separate out women with cyclophosphamide because we know that women treated with cyclophosphamide generally will have lower levels of AMH. I'll add that AMH is used pretty widely in the reproductive endocrinology world, particularly as a marker of women who will be able to successfully go through in vitro fertilization and obtain viable eggs. 
So women with very low levels of AMH, the fertility doctors will often not pursue IVF with their own eggs because of the high failure rates. Other than that, it is a little bit less clinically useful than I think we initially thought that it would be. There is some nice data showing from the nurses' health study that lower levels of AMH are associated with earlier time to menopause. So it does suggest that having lower levels can have clinical meaning. But even women with low levels of AMH can occasionally get pregnant on their own. And so it is not a perfect marker of ovarian function and the lifespan of a functional ovary, but it is a rough estimate, I think, of ovarian health that can be useful in studies like this. Thank you, Dr. Close, for that additional insight. Dr. Lim, can you explain for our listeners the origins of the GOAL study that was established at Emory University School of Medicine? GOAL stands for Georgians Organized Against Lupus. It's a population-based cohort and was derived from a CDC-funded lupus registry, which the primary aim was to more accurately determine incidence and prevalence in the Atlanta area. And we leveraged a state public health exemption that allowed us to collect medical records and other information without patient consent, which was really powerful in terms of validating diagnoses on a very broad level. And so we leveraged that to create a cohort from which we did this pilot study that we titled Lupus Impacting the Female Experience or Life Study. Megan Angley, tell us more about the life study and about the role this group of women played in your study. The LIFE study was 100 women who are younger than 40, so in theory they might still be attempting pregnancy. So they were enrolled and we collected blood samples and got AMH values for them. And we relied on self-reported history of cyclophosphamide to separate out those women because we know that cyclophosphamide will affect AMH levels and they're also likely to have more severe disease. So they kind of represent a separate group, but we wanted to distinguish them because one of the questions that we had was the effect of lupus as a disease on AMH levels separate from the effect of cyclophosphamide. We had three exposure groups, women with lupus who had been exposed to cyclophosphamide, women with lupus who hadn't been exposed to cyclophosphamide, and then we also had a separate comparison group of women without lupus. So we looked at AMH values in each of those three groups. How did you develop the comparative control group for this study? The control group actually came from a separate study that had the same series of questions on reproductive health history that our women with lupus in the life study had. And they were actually derived from a marketing list. So they were from the same area in Georgia, the Atlanta metropolitan area, all African-American women, same age group, but they were pulled from marketing lists. Okay, so what were your findings? What did your data tell you? One of the big determinants of AMH levels, aside from chronic health issues, is age. So we made a point of controlling for age in all of our analyses. So we found that controlling for age, women with lupus who had not been treated with cyclophosphamide had slightly lower levels of AMH for age, but this wasn't statistically significant. Where we saw the real difference was women who had been treated with cyclophosphamide to the point that younger women, so women in their early 20s, treated with cyclophosphamide had AMH levels that were comparable to women who were almost 40 who had not been treated with cyclophosphamide. And the cyclophosphamide group was small, but we did see a really strong association with AMH levels. So were you able to arrive at any conclusions about the cause of lower AMH levels among these women? 
Was it the lupus disease activity? Or was it the cyclophosphamide that contributed to these lower levels? So that was a question that we weren't able to answer with our data because we would expect women treated with cyclophosphamide to have more severe disease, but we can't separate out that effect in our data. Dr. Close, have there been any previous studies that might provide some clues about the cause of these lower levels? So prior data really suggests that it's the cyclophosphamide that is likely driving these really low levels of AMH in this patient group. Almost a decade ago, I think, I actually analyzed patients who had vasculitis who were in a drug trial. So they all had severe GPA vasculitis, and a subset of them received cyclophosphamide. And over the study, the only patients that really had a dramatic drop in AMH levels were patients who received cyclophosphamide, and it was a very dramatic drop similar to what was found in the study. Megan Angley, we know from prior lupus epidemiology studies that cases of lupus can be more serious among African-American women. Was that disparity part of the motivation for your study? I couldn't find a study on AMH levels conducted specifically among an African-American population with lupus, especially comparing to a healthy population. A lot of the AMH studies are conducted in white populations with lupus. And because African-American women are at greater risk of lupus, we thought that was information that was really missing. Dr. Close, Lupus Science and Medicine recently published your paper, Learning to Listen, how emphatic engagement with patients can help overcome reproductive injustice. This paper highlights the importance of having rheumatologists engage with their patients about fertility and family planning, especially among black women. Can you provide some additional insight? One of the great values of all of this whole body of work with the goal studies is that, that many Black women with lupus really have a very different lived experience of lupus as well as life as compared to the rest of the patients who are in lupus trials and studies. They have shown really interesting work about the impact of racism within and outside of healthcare on these patients' lives and medical conditions. And I think that it goes beyond the impact of being a Black woman with lupus. And so I think that's it's really important that these studies are done because we can't just assume that worse lupus means that these patients are going to do worse. There's more to it than that. And I think that particularly when you look at fertility and family planning and desire for a family and the timing of pregnancy in Black women is in some ways different from white women, in some ways not different. And, and we as rheumatologists largely, I think, overlook those differences in our research, but also in our care. So I think it's really important that these are studies that are done more than just biologic. It's broader than that. The prospect of early menopause is something that rheumatologists often overlook, both in their discussions about family planning, but I think particularly we, we don't really think about it as, as an issue by race. I don't think people are thinking about it a lot. And I think that both sort of psychosocial impact of earlier menopause on ability to have pregnancies, as well as feelings about themselves, physical symptoms of menopause, but also cardiovascular risk, osteoporosis risk, that sort of thing, I think probably needs to be considered in the rheumatology world. And, and I don't think anybody's doing it. And I think that this study really highlights a need for focus on that area. Dr. Lim, I'd like to get your perspective on this issue. What Dr. Close has really led with a few other people as well is just highlighting the importance of this issue. And, you know, I think the fact that women of color, especially uh, Black women, develop lupus at a younger age and they will often be driven into menopause earlier, the window of opportunity becomes earlier and perhaps even shorter. And this can really get lost in the midst of so many issues that especially rheumatologists and, and other specialists have to deal with. And, and I appreciate Dr. 
Dr. Close and, and her colleagues really raising that issue up, that we need to address it head on. This is a very important topic for our patients. That's clear. And so are all the other medical issues that we deal with in the clinical encounter, but we rarely, we meaning generally speaking, the medical field, we rarely openly discuss it with our patients. And we need to do that. And if we continue not to do that, what we're doing is we're inadvertently perseverating this institutional bias. And it, it's implicit, but nevertheless, it's present and it's persistent by our actions or rather inactions. And we're not satisfying the needs of our patients and we need to do better. I thought one of the most interesting findings from some of your work in the life study is that the desire for pregnancy and the size of a family really is not different in your patients with lupus and your patients without lupus. I think that almost all of the women that you engaged with wanted to have children of their own. And I think that that is really a huge component of quality of life and people particularly living with a chronic disease having value. I think it's essential that we address that. And by not addressing it, we leave our patients at risk for really terrible pregnancy outcomes, but also for living a childless life, which can be devastating for some women. Dr. Close, the outlook for pregnancy and childbirth among women with lupus has improved, and there is some great research that has contributed to this more positive outcome. What is the data showing? So there is increasing data showing that pregnancies can be very successful for women who are living with lupus. The promise work by Jill Byan and Jane Salmon have demonstrated terrific outcomes for patients who are followed closely. So those outcomes were not as good for women living with social determinants of health, such as lower education than other women. In my work, what I'm seeing is that pregnancy planning is essential to pregnancy success. So when I look at our patients who get pregnant without careful planning, meaning that they sometimes will get pregnant when their disease is active or they're taking medications that cause birth defects or they don't know to continue their essential medications that are safe in pregnancy, allowing their lupus to become more active after conception. That's really where our poor pregnancy outcomes are, but that we can have great success with carefully planned and timed pregnancies. And so doing that takes proactive work by the rheumatologist, right? Our patients just aren't born knowing that. Our patients often assume that we will not partner with them to have a successful pregnancy, and therefore they just kind of go around us. They've kind of gotten the impression that our doctors are not interested or don't think they can have a safe pregnancy, but they still want to have a child, and that really trumps their health, to be quite honest, for many of them. And so being proactive to talk about pregnancy timing, pregnancy medications, that sort of thing, I think really can actually transform the pregnancies that are happening in the lupus world and allow our women to have much more positive experiences instead of suffering through multiple miscarriages or stillbirths or delivering very preterm and having children who are permanently damaged by the poor planning of our rheumatologists and patients. Megan Angley, what do you see as the primary takeaway from your study? I think it was that this and then also um, another study in the same population where we looked at infertility is that reproductively speaking, things don't look as bad among women with lupus as we might have thought they did. Just like Dr. Klaus was saying, with planning, these women can get pregnant, have healthy pregnancies deliver successfully. And it's really not anecdotally what it was years and years ago, where if women were diagnosed with lupus, that was it. And then they couldn't have children. I think we're seeing that it actually looks a lot better than we thought it did. Dr. Close, I understand that your institution has valuable resources available for rheumatologists and for women with lupus who are considering pregnancy. Tell us more about this online resource. 
for rheumatologists and women with lupus who want resources about how to effectively plan pregnancies, we have created a website called lupuspregnancy.org that has handouts and videos and information about how best to plan and manage a pregnancy safely. And it is all aligned with the American College of Rheumatology's recent reproductive health guidelines, which can really help doctors and patients make good decisions about pregnancy, but also about contraception, about fertility treatment, about avoiding fertility, and about management of menopause. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, and I want to thank you for speaking with us about the article, Anti-Malarium Hormone in African-American Women with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, and the article, Learning to Listen, How Emphatic Engagement with Patients Can Help Overcome Reproductive Injustice. These articles are published online in the open access journal, Lupus Science and Medicine, and are available for free at lupus.bmj.com. Our guests today have been Megan Angley, PhD candidate in epidemiology, who is also affiliated with the Goal Study at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Sam Lim, professor of medicine at Emory University School of Medicine, and Dr. Megan Close, associate professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. For Lupus Science and Medicine and BMJ, I'm Dwayne Peters with the Lupus Foundation of America. Thank you for listening.